Yeah, please walk, walk in there. In? But it's not super safe to walk too far back. And so this okay. is where I've started to um, collect and dry out my um, dual purpose hemp. And so this looks much different than the plants we were just looking at before. And it's not as sticky as well. So yeah, as well, long as you're not allergic, oh, yeah, feel free oh, to. But that is, oh, that man, that smells like weed. Yes, it's very pungent. Um, I'm looking at a shipping container less, full of uh, drying plants. It's a plant that humans have grown for over 10,000 years. It produces everything from fabric to food, from rope and building supplies to medicines. It's remarkably tough and can grow practically anywhere. In many ways, it's a perfect plant. Except until quite recently, it was completely illegal to grow anywhere in the U.S. In this episode of Fiber Nation, we trace the rise and fall and rise again of hemp. From its roots in Asia to its importance in the colonial U.S., from World War II to the war on drugs, hemp has a curious and complicated history. Today, we'll look at how this long-vilified plant is turning over a new leaf as farmers and entrepreneurs discover its multiple uses. Because hemp's future, it turns out, is a lot more than just fiber. Oh, and we're going to talk a lot about smoking pot. I'm Alison Korleski, and you're listening to Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture. I am pulling into the driveway of the Arctic Agriculture Program, and it looks like that is Brian there waiting to meet me. Cool. Hey, you must be Brian. How are you? Good, Good morning. how are you? Doing well, thank you. I've just driven 10 miles north from my home to a big field that belongs to Colorado State University's Agriculture Program. I'm here to meet Brian Mitchell, my guide to all things hemp. I'm Brian Mitchell, and I'm a PhD student at Colorado State University. Brian is also a teaching assistant at CSU and helps run their hemp program. Growing hemp was illegal in the U.S. from 1937 to 2014, when a farm bill allowed a few pilot programs to study the plant. Another farm bill in 2018 removed further restrictions and allowed the sale of hemp products in all states. Today, hemp is hot. So what is this stuff? And why all the fuss over a fiber plant going back decades? Let's get some background. So hemp is an ancient crop that is native to Asia. And humanity started cultivating this crop over 10,000 years ago for its fibers, its nutrition potential, and for its medicinal properties. You might know hemp mostly as a fiber plant. Hemp fiber is a lot like linen and can make ropes and canvas, burlap and baskets, even yarn. The seeds are incredibly rich in protein and have helped entire populations avoid starvation. The woody bits not used for fiber can make building materials, kind of like plant-based cement blocks. But before we go any further, the one thing you need to know, the key to today's episode, the hemp plant that makes fiber and food is also the hemp plant that makes marijuana. Except at the same time, it kind of isn't. The name for all hemp, whatever it produces, is cannabis sativa, or just plain cannabis. And all hemp, no matter what it's used for, has these things called cannabinoids, chemical compounds not found in any other plant. The two important cannabinoids that you need to know 
are tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, that's the stuff that gets you stoned, and cannabidiol, or CBD, which doesn't get you high but is used medicinally. These two chemicals and their presence or absence are what makes the difference between industrial hemp and pot. And so this plant has co-evolved with humanity for thousands of years, and we've selected plants that we liked for certain reasons. And over time, that led to plants that are high in THC and plants that are high in CBD, and then a lot of gray area in between. And so we've legally defined the crop that if it's below a certain threshold, it's hemp, and it has all these uses. But if it's above a certain threshold of THC, that psychoactive ingredient, it's considered marijuana, which is still a controlled substance in the United States. Historically, most hemp probably falls into that gray area. Hemp has been in the U.S. for a long time. The first General Assembly of Virginia in Jamestown, all the way back in 1619, made laws that punished drunkenness and gambling and stealing canoes, but they also mandated that every farmer grow hemp. The rope and sails made from that hemp powered everything from trade ships to the British Navy. And hemp remained woven into the fabric of American life until the 1930s. Before 1937, hemp was actually a really popular plant in the United States. And um, it was cultivated by many of the founding fathers. You could even pay your taxes in hemp for many years. So there were many uses, mainly in the the fiber and textile industries, um, but we also used it for medicine as well. It wasn't wasn't banned, and so it was common in medicinal use and private use. I wanted to know more about the medicinal uses of hemp, so I reached out to a drug historian. Turns out hemp has a twisty history with a lot of layers. My name is Bob Beach, and I'm a historian of uh, marijuana. I am a doctoral candidate at the State University uh, of New York at Albany, and I'm also a history instructor. I teach U.S. uh, survey courses. When we think about the history of cannabis, the plant in the United States, we have to think about it in a sort of three-tiered or in three phases, more accurately. So the first phase uh, would be sort of traced back to the colonial period, and that's when cannabis was used as hemp, uh, so for its fiber. The second phase is what historians might refer to as the psychoactive revolution. During the European colonization of China, India, and North Africa, European doctors saw the local population using hemp medicinally to treat things like cramps, stomach pains, and a lot of other ailments. They also saw very concentrated forms of cannabis, like hashish, being used as medicine, but also as part of social and religious activities. And they got excited because here was a new substance with what seemed like a lot of medical value. But they saw things through a very racial lens. So when you think about this process, right, you have to understand it in the context of the so-called civilizing mission, right, where we're taking things from other cultures, uh, right, that we refine this, this sort of crude local drug into something that's sophisticated, that's Western, that's modern, and that is civilized. And they integrate the drug usually as a tincture, uh, and it enters the European pharmacopedias where it remains until like the mid 20th century. And these cannabis remedies made their way to the U.S. I'm sure you've seen old advertisements for things like Dr. Kilmer's consumption remedy or pink pills for pale people. These magic potions often relied on things like laudanum or opium, cocaine and cannabis oil for the feel-good effect. And these substances were in more legitimate medicine, too. This was something Brian pointed out. 
So yeah, if you think of the old-timey um, feel-good tonics, there are a lot of substances in those that we would be surprised about today. One of the examples I think about is, is cocaine was widely used in dentistry and in medical practices until it was outright banned in 1970, as was marijuana with hemp lumped in as well. So you have this plant in pretty much every state, and it's used for all kinds of stuff. Everyday items like rope and cloth and paper, along with a lot of medicine. Then, over a decade or so, in the 1920s and 30s, cannabis goes from this prevalent but not terribly exciting commodity to being the devil's candy. What happened? And then the third phase is the marijuana phase. That's when one of those local preparations, uh, smoking the drug, comes across the border from Mexico. The Mexican Revolution was a civil war that went on for 10 years, beginning in 1910. Tens of thousands of Mexicans fled the violence every year, immigrating to the U.S. And some of those Mexicans smoked marijuana, their name for cannabis. The Spanish had introduced hemp into Mexico and Latin America, and at some point, someone discovered that smoking its sticky flowers gave you a pretty nice buzz. Random side note here. The Mexican folk song La Cucaracha goes back to the 1800s and has dozens of versions. But during the Mexican Revolution, it took a decidedly political slant. The cockroach of the title represents Mexican President Victoriano Huerta, a notorious drunk. The lyrics describe an injured cockroach, the president, who can't keep hobbling on because he's run out of the marijuana he uses as a crutch. Ouch. Anyways, even though white Americans had been happily ingesting cannabis in a variety of concoctions for well over 100 years, this new form was suspect. When this smokable form of the plant comes to the United States in the early 20th century, there's this sort of clear disconnect, right? That they're doing something that's different. They're not necessarily doing it to cure anything as much as they're doing it to enjoy themselves. And this is not the first time that anti-immigrant feelings were tied to drugs and alcohol. Going back to the mid-1800s, Irish were viewed as shiftless alcoholics, Chinese people as sinister opium smokers, and now you had Mexican immigrants smoking cannabis. Doesn't matter that your white neighbor might be slinging back half a pint of laudanum a day. That was doctor prescribed, presumably for medical reasons. The idea of consuming cannabis solely for recreational use, though, that was a different matter. Over the next decade, anti-immigrant, anti-cannabis rhetoric would ratchet up, and it was amplified by a bullet-headed bureaucrat named Harry J. Anslinger. Coming up after the break, we see how a single man managed to outlaw an entire industry, and we hear how he was helped by a major newspaper chain and one spectacularly bad movie. We're back, and I'm about to introduce the villain of this episode. But first, I need to give a bit more context. Because the brouhaha over cannabis was more like a mask, covering a lot of social anxiety in general. Here's Bob. Sure, yes. When, when we think about the reaction to this introduction of cannabis in the early 20th century, um, we're thinking about not necessarily the drug, right? The drug is not necessarily the point of contention. There's a lot of things that are going on in the United States around that time. American society at the turn of the 20th century was in constant upheaval. 
You had multiple financial crises, government scandals. You had waves of immigration. You had the women's suffrage movement, getting the right to vote. You had the Roaring Twenties with an overall loosening of morals. Think of flappers getting drunk on bathtub gin. And finally, you had the financial crash of 1929, leading to the Great Depression. People were freaked out about a lot of things. And in times like that, immigrants who speak a different language and have different customs and are maybe taking jobs from hardworking Americans are a really handy target. So you start to hear stories about pot-smoking Mexicans handing out marijuana to unsuspecting schoolchildren. You start to hear about violent murders committed under the influence of cannabis. Cannabis and the people who use it become a focus for social anxiety in general. And the person who did the focusing was Harry Anslinger. Anslinger ran the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. That's the precursor to today's Drug Enforcement Agency for decades. So Harry Anslinger is an interesting figure. He is a he is a career bureaucrat and he's he's very good at being a bureaucrat, right? He's sort of proficient at making himself useful. Anslinger got his start helping the State Department fight international drug trafficking, mostly opium. During Prohibition, he worked on anti-smuggling operations, stopping illicit booze at the Canadian and Mexican borders. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics was originally a satellite of the Prohibition Bureau. And in 1930, it needed someone with experience to run it. And Harry Anslinger became its first chief. Uh, and he stayed in that position from 1930 to until he retired in 1960, uh, 1962, sorry. And through that time, he, he becomes the kind of go-to person in the country for all drug issues. He is... He's everywhere. He's writing articles. He's writing books. Anslinger, by his own admission, wasn't initially all that concerned about cannabis. In fact, he spent most of his early years at the new agency bragging about his work on opium. But heroin and cocaine weren't the big deal they would become later on. And then prohibition ended in 1933, so booze wasn't an issue anymore either. Anslinger needed something more to justify his position. And that something was cannabis. In all those articles he wrote, Anslinger started to directly link cannabis with criminality, insanity, and death. You smoke a joint and you're likely to kill your own brother, he wrote. Truth or even research wasn't really important. Anslinger supposedly consulted 30 doctors looking for a connection between cannabis and violent crime. Only one doctor actually agreed with him, so he ignored the other 29 and made the one doctor his expert witness on the issue. And his cynical approach, largely rooted in the desire to keep his job, worked. Though smokable weed had been called cannabis, newspaper and other articles followed his lead and began calling it marijuana, explicitly linking it to Mexican immigrants. But Anslinger was an equal opportunity racist and xenophobe. There are 100,000 marijuana smokers in the U.S., he wrote, and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Side note, he hated jazz. He wrote over and over about the dangers marijuana posed to white people, particularly young women. And more and more, newspapers lapped it up. Yeah, I think there's actually like a symbiotic relationship there. That Anslinger is creating quite a bit of buzz, to be sure, but he's certainly not the only one. The growing, if manufactured, hysteria about cannabis reached a sensational pinnacle in 1936. A church group had commissioned a film called Teacher Children. It was a badly acted, if earnest, attempt to document the social ills of marijuana. 
But then an exploitation filmmaker got his hands on it and turned it into reefer madness. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Uh, Reefer Madness is an interesting film, and I think a lot of the buzz around Reefer Madness comes because of its rediscovery in the 1970s, right? And it becomes kind of a cult classic because as you watch this, I've actually heard someone refer to the film as something that seems like it was transmitted from Mars, right? It doesn't seem to be real. In Reefer Madness, a group of young people are introduced to the pleasures of getting high and go from innocent sock hops to rape, murder, suicide, running someone over with a car, and playing the piano really fast. It's considered to be one of the worst films of all time, but it does a great job of showing how freaked out some people were by a supposed marijuana menace. I mean, I, I think that too is kind of a testament to uh, how well Anslinger was able to take an existing issue and make it more than it actually was. And at this point in time, people didn't know about THC. Didn't matter if it was a joint or growing in some farmer's field next to the wheat. It was all cannabis, and all cannabis was now bad. In 1937, Anslinger drafted and Congress passed the Marijuana Tax Act. While it didn't specifically outlaw growing hemp, it essentially killed it with a whole bunch of complex regulations and taxes. Hemp was just too much trouble to grow, especially as new materials like nylon were coming onto the market and replacing hemp products. It seemed like hemp had had its day. And before we move on, I want to take a minute and do some myth-busting. Because there's a conspiracy theory that I came across a lot in my research, particularly in pro-marijuana articles. And I even fell for it until I did more digging. It goes something like this. In his work to link cannabis to the forces of darkness, Anslinger had some hefty help. Because one of the things hemp can make is paper. A man named William Randolph Hearst, you might know him from Citizen Kane, owned the largest newspaper chain in America at the time. Total circulation in the 1930s was over 20 million. He also happened to own several large timber farms to provide the pulp for his newspapers. The DuPont Chemical Company, meanwhile, helped process that pulp. And they were also developing a lot of new products that competed with hemp, like the nylon I mentioned. Like a lot of conspiracy theories, things get super complicated and hard to follow and kind of weird. But supposedly Hearst, DuPont, and the Secretary of the Treasury at the time, Andrew Mellon, all team up with Anslinger to kill the hemp industry for their own personal profit. It's a great story about capitalism and power and political nefariousness, but it's probably not true. What is true is that Hearst tabloids exploded with sensational stories of marijuana-fueled crime sprees, rapes, even an axe murderer. And these stories helped fuel anti-cannabis sentiment. But was Hearst pushing a secret agenda or just trying to sell more papers? However hard hit hemp was by the late 30s, it would go on to have a second act during World War II. And coincidentally, it was another film that helped bring it back. Let's pick up again with Brian Mitchell, our hemp expert. The 1937 Marijuana Tax Act made hemp production difficult and expensive in the United States, and hemp was no longer profitable, so farmers stopped growing it. 
Yet when we got to World War II and our hemp supplies from other countries were closed off, it became patriotic again to grow hemp. And there was even a Hemp for Victory video released by the USDA instructing farmers in great detail on how to grow hemp to supply our United States Navy in World War II with the ropes and sails and other materials that it needed. Okay, we didn't use sails then, but hemp fiber was used in parachutes, clothing, even to sew boots together. This is Manila hemp from the Navy's rapidly dwindling reserve. When that is gone, American hemp will go on duty again. Hemp for mooring ships, hemp for tow lines, hemp for tackle and gear, hemp for countless naval uses, both on ship and shore. Hemp for victory. It's wild because the the video is very propaganda-like. I mean, that was common in World War II. But it goes from being this very patriotic, hooray for hemp-type video, and then a few minutes afterwards, it it basically becomes one of the first USDA instructional videos on how to produce high-quality fiber hemp. We have a link to this film on our show notes page, and you really should check it out. victory was short-lived, however. After the war, the Tax Act went back into effect, and the 1960s were pretty much the 1930s all over again, except that cannabis was now seen more as a gateway drug. Smoking a joint wouldn't turn you into a depraved murderer, but it would lead you to more dangerous stuff like heroin. And that attitude continued with the so-called war on drugs up until very recently. Public policy is not the same as scientific research, however. And even though most hemp products were banned, there were still studies done on cannabis. Fun fact here, during World War II, the government tried to develop a truth serum using cannabis. It wasn't terribly successful because the test subjects just laughed a lot and then took a nap. More importantly, though, scientists were discovering and isolating compounds like THC and CBD and found out that not all hemp was the same. Most of it, in fact, had very little THC. And that became important. This threshold for THC that we legally define hemp versus marijuana is 0.3% on a dry weight matter basis. And this was actually a botanical classification that a Canadian researcher came up with in the 1970s. Another side note, 0.3% isn't much. In fact, it would take maybe 100 times that amount of THC to give you even a small buzz. So people started looking at hemp again as a legitimate crop. Ironically, it was the marijuana legalization movement that paved the way to grow industrial hemp again. And Colorado, where I live, is a big marijuana state. Yes, I I think that because of our more progressive drug laws and Amendment 64 that legalized recreational marijuana on top of the the medical marijuana as well, that kind of opens the door like, well, if they can grow that, like, why are we not growing hemp, which is also used for um, legitimate drugs, food supplements, and a million other things, depending on how you grow it and what type of um, plants you're growing. And that led me to those fields at Colorado State University. So CSU is a land-grant university, and one of our biggest stakeholders are the farmers of Colorado. And so there was a huge surge of interest as soon as we were allowed to grow hemp legally in the United States, uh, first after the 2014 Farm Bill, but more especially after 2018 Farm Bill. And so growers are jumping into this like crazy, and Colorado is one of the biggest hemp-producing states. Here's some more irony, though. I thought 
going into this episode that hemp's resurgence was all about the fibery stuff. Nope. Hemp fiber is the hardest part of the plant to process. It takes the most time and it's the least profitable. It's that other plant compound we talked about, CBD, where the money is today. CBD is hailed as a wonder drug for pretty much everything. But most of that is based on anecdotal evidence, not hard science. CBD is not a panacea. We've proven that it is highly effective in certain types of epilepsy. And there is preliminary research on its effects on inflammation responses, anxiety, memory, and so much more. But this research is in its infancy, and we need more study before we can definitively say CBD does this, CBD cures that. That doesn't seem to matter, though. On the drive up to meet Brian, I passed maybe a dozen stores that sold CBD oil. I think I can buy it at my car wash, for that matter. As part of his research, Brian has been developing dual-use hemp plants, ones that produce high CBD oil, but also seeds for food. Hemp seed is incredibly nutritious. It's high in protein, omega fats, and minerals. And here, it's mostly in natural grocery stores, but it's been a major food crop in other countries in other time periods. At the farm, he takes me into a big container truck full of drying plants that hang upside down. They look like green prickly tumbleweeds, and the smell is pretty pungent. And then what I'm trying to do in here is basically use the heat of the shipping container as it warms up during the day, this fan, and then when I can have the door open to just let it dry out slowly. We figured out when we used our drying ovens at the big farm and put some CBD hemp in there, we basically uh, not only made one person ill, um, oh. it stunk up the place really, really bad before a large 2,000 person third grader event. We have big ag days where we teach ag to kids and we have them come look at the cows and walk through the fields. Growing hemp is a learning process, it seems. Besides drying it without upsetting a lot of parents, Brian is trying to figure out how to develop different strains for different uses. But a lot of growers are just trying to figure out how to grow it, period. Well, yeah, it seems like when hemp started getting really popular in like 2015, so after the farm bill made it legal in some states um, to grow hemp, a lot of folks thought you could just um, maybe plant hemp in your backyard. Hemp doesn't grow by itself. It takes work and it takes a plan. You have to know what you're going to do with your crop, how to process and sell it after you harvest. I think the enthusiasm is warranted. I also think that people should take a deep breath and step back. And multi-purpose hemp, it's a sticky wicket. If you grow it for fiber, you need to harvest early, before it becomes too woody. If you grow it for food, for seeds, you need to harvest much later. And if you want really high-quality CBD oil, you pretty much need to grow it indoors, away from pollen. Hemp flowers can produce high-quality food or high-quality CBD resin, but not both. Or at least, not yet. But Brian hopes to figure it out, even if the research seems a little unorthodox sometimes. One thing I notice as we're walking through the fields is a bunch of really trashed-looking plants. I asked Brian what happened. Hail damage study. They would come through with a big cat of nine tails whip and, and basically beat up the hemp <laughs> and then study to see how that affects like the molecular profile. Is it producing more CBD? What surprised me the most as I put this episode together was how far hemp had moved away from fiber and into these other products. But then again, Patagonia's hemp clothing line follows me online everywhere now, along with ads for hemp core jewelry supplies and some pretty hippie-looking backpacks. 
And I was thinking about this while I put away my microphone and stuff after our interview. And I realized that the canvas tote for my equipment, the one that's been chewed on by the dog and has had its handles caught in the car door twice now and it still looks okay, according to the label, it's cotton and hemp. Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. If you like what you hear, please rate us and leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your reviews help other people find us. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Allison Korleski. Our co-producer and audio engineer is Daisha Clay. Fiber Nation is part of Interweave and Golden Peak Media, and our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayo. Hemp for victory. Oh, that man, that smells like weed.